week, Lord willing, look at one verse, and then we'll, we'll increase the pace a little bit after that. Uh, today we'll, we'll look at uh, verse 10. I would like to begin the reading, uh, however, in verse, uh, verse 7 and read through verse 11. So Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 7, before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Our Father and our God, we bring you our gold and myrrh, our incense, our acts of devotion to you and worship you and adore your Son, Jesus Christ, who was born in mean estate to a virgin that we that he might have that same flesh pierced through with nails and with thorns for our sake. And so we praise you, O God, for this great work that you have done in our behalf. We thank you for the word of God that comes to us from the voice of our resurrected Savior. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds, that we might be renewed after the image of Christ, who called us to himself and who continues Uh, to speak to us in his word. Father, do this good work in your people to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ, for it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 7, beloved, this is the word of God. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Last week we looked at our justification in Christ. We are declared innocent and righteous by God because of Christ's atoning death and because of his perfect obedience credited to our account. It is because of what he has done, it, and it is because of what Christ has done, is the reason that we are justified in God's sight. This is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This benefit of justification that flows to us from our union with Christ, this is something that every Christian possesses. Every Christian possesses, and we all possess it equally. Your justification cannot be increased or decreased by what you do or don't do. You cannot threaten your acceptance with God, your justification, by what you do or don't do. Ultimately, you cannot threaten that state that you are justified if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ, you are adopted into God's family, you are accepted by him, Because of what his son has done for you. Now, that's what we considered last time. Now, in verse 10, we look at an answer to a question. Verse 10 answers the question that might be posed as we think about our justification. 
if Christ has done everything for me, if this is true, if Christ has done everything for me to ensure my acceptance with God, if this is true, if that acceptance cannot ultimately be threatened by what I do or don't do, do I have to do anything? Does my life change at all? Or should I seek to live a different life than the life I lived before outside of Christ? Is there any motivation for Christians believing and trusting in this doctrine, the doctrine of free grace, the doctrine of justification? Is there any motivation flowing from that to seek change in the way that we live our daily existence? This verse, verse 10, gives us an unmistakable yes to those questions. Yes, there is a motivation on how you should live your life and how you should change your life. Yes, we should live differently. There is expectations for us as Christians to do certain things and to not do other things. Christians who have been freely forgiven and accepted by God as his children are expected to be active, to do, to do things. And again, to forfeit doing other things. And yes, there is a great motivation in Christ to see change in the way we live. Now, one of the things that happens when a person is united to Christ by faith is that you are justified. That is true. We saw that in verse 9. You have a righteousness from God that is not your own. It is one that you take hold of by faith in Christ. And therefore, based on Christ's righteousness credited to you, you are declared forever innocent, accepted, and righteous. But that is not all. When we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, our nature is changed. We go through a transformation. This is what the phrase being born again refers to. You, as a Christian, are no longer the same creature that you were before when you came into contact or before you came into contact with Jesus Christ. You are different. Your nature has changed. You are fundamentally different. Although you share a lot of the same qualities as your former self, obviously your physical makeup doesn't necessarily change yet. But you are different. You have a new heart. You have new desires. Now think about the change in Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was, previously to coming into contact with Christ and being born again, he was a persecutor and murderer of the church, Christ's own body. He wanted to eliminate that. He boasted in his own righteousness. He boasted in the confidence in the flesh that he thought he had. After coming into contact with the resurrected Christ and being united to Christ by faith, that's what happened when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus Paul was united to the resurrected Christ. Paul was given faith. Paul was at that point then changed. He received a new nature, new desires. And so that now in Christ, as a new creature in Christ, Paul no longer says, I want to eliminate Christ. I want to eliminate his people. Now in Christ, he says things like this. Verse 10, I consider all things lost that I may know him, that I may know Christ. He says, I don't want anything that the world offers. I want to know Christ. I desire to be with him without the effects of sin, 
I want to know him, to know him more and more. Through spirit-given faith, believers begin to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Listen to what Paul says about this knowledge that we have in Christ, or knowledge of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the same way that God in the beginning, by his word, brought into existence a world that was not there before, out of nothing. In the same way that God brought into existence light in the beginning when light was not there, heaven and indeed all things, so too God has created something new when he gave you faith. He brought into existence Something that wasn't there before. Namely, a living heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that loves God, that wants to know God. This new creation that happens in you, that you are, does not happen, friends, apart from union with Christ. It happens in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happened to Paul. He came into contact with the face of Jesus Christ. Of course, that was... By his word from heaven, when we hear the gospel, that is what we come into contact with. We look into the face of Jesus Christ, and at the moment that we start believing, whenever that may have been, you are now a new creation. Something new has come into the world by virtue of your union with Christ. You now know Christ, and in knowing Christ, you know God. And in this way, you are sanctified, you are holy, you are set apart for the service to God in the name of Christ. What is sanctification? The Shorter Catechism describes it as a work of God. It is an ongoing work that happens inside of us. And so it's different from justification. Justification is a declaration from heaven about us. But sanctification is something that happens in us. God works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right. So this is something that happens in us. What is that? Well, we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. So back to our original question, do our, are our lives expected to change? Yes. You are expected to more and more die to sin and to more and more live unto righteousness in this life. Unlike justification, which is a one-time permanent declaration, and is equal in all Christians, sanctification is different. In sanctification, we are set apart as a new creation, and as a new creation, our knowledge of Christ grows. It matures throughout the course of your entire life. Perhaps it begins in a childlike state where you're not expected to stay there. You're expected to grow in your knowledge of Christ, to mature, to, to attain adulthood, spiritual adulthood, as it were. And so in this way, you are slowly but surely, over the course of your life, conformed into something else. You are made different more and more. Namely, you are made into the image of Jesus Christ. And so it's a process in each individual and in the church as a whole. Sanctification waxes and wanes throughout the course of our lives. But there should be, friends, there should be an overall steady growth. 
Where you are today should not be the same place, at least in some areas of your life, as you were 5, 10, 20 years ago, whatever it may be. This is sanctification. This is a movement toward a deeper knowledge of Christ, and we never stop moving in this life. Now, this is what Paul was referring to in himself here, this process. He says, that I may know him, and, and then Paul goes on to explain what this process of knowing Christ looks like what it means. And so he starts off by mentioning the power of Christ's resurrection. This is part of what it means to know Christ more and more. When Christ was raised from the dead, what happened? When he was raised from the dead, Jesus overcame and cut off the power of sin in the world and the power of the devil. He bound the strong man. As those who were part of that old created, that old world order, that old world order of sin and death, that that is believers, us, we were a part of that in some sense. We were, as part of that world order, we were tyrannized by a power that we were enslaved to. The power of sin that dominated our lives and the power of the devil. That is the, the... That is is the way we lived our daily lives, in slavery to sin and slavery to the devil. Such was Paul. Evidence of that slavery to sin in Paul was that he persecuted the church. He was taken over for a time by a blind rage out of his sin. He wanted to completely snuff out the witness of Jesus Christ himself on the earth. He boasted in his own righteousness. And so in a word, he was a slave to sin for a time. But this is what the Spirit did when Paul was converted. He applied the power of Christ's resurrection to Paul's inner man. He cut off the dominion of sin in Paul by applying the resurrection of Christ, that power, to his inner person. And so in this way, as Scripture says, we've already undergone a kind of resurrection from the dead in our inner person, in our being born again. Paul, at that point, began to serve Christ in heaven. He began to love Christ, to know him. He began to desire being with Christ in heaven. Paul then began to understand that by the power of Christ's resurrection, a new age has dawned. A new world order has made itself known in the world. How is that done? Well, it's done in the conversion of sinners. You are now part of a new world order. You are a citizen of heaven now. You belong to another realm fundamentally, essentially. And that realm that you now belong to is a realm where God is worshipped, where he's glorified, where he's served freely, willingly, joyfully. A new age has dawned. The kingdom of heaven has come. And this present world, it has come into this present world that we see a present world that is doomed for destruction. Now, do you not think that knowing these things, what I just explained, knowing these things more and more in your relationship with Christ, do you not think that that would cause you to live your life differently? It should. To know that you are bound for something else, that you fundamentally don't belong here and are a stranger here, a foreigner here, an alien here, And fundamentally, in this world, and with all its pervertedness and sin, you always feel that you feel like you don't belong, knowing that you're 
bound for a different place, that your, citizen, your citizenship is in heaven, knowing that the logical outworking of that is that your life would be different here, that you would be as stars in the sky, as Paul said, as you cling to the word of life. Paul, this is what happened for Paul. Instead of persecuting the church, he began to lay down his life for the church. Instead of living for himself and the glories of this world, he began to live as a citizen of heaven. He began to love the church, to serve her. He began to store up not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And from there, Paul says he wanted to know Christ more and more. By sharing in his suffering, so he starts with the power of his resurrection, and then he uh, refers to sharing in Christ's suffering. Now, this word that's translated sharing is translated elsewhere as fellowship. The idea is close personal experience or a close relationship with Christ's suffering. Now, this same word is used in chapter 1. Paul says there, I thank God in my prayers for you because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel. The same word is used again in chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit or any fellowship in the Spirit, that's the same word. And so then, this is a, this fellowship with Christ's suffering, this is a Spirit-created fellowship that each one of us has with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We have a relationship, as it were, a close, personal, and intimate fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mystery for sure, but nonetheless, that is the case. The sufferings of Christ mentioned here is a reference, of course, to Christ's road to the cross, the road that he walked towards crucifixion, and it includes, for sure, his humiliating death on the cross. That is the sufferings that are in view. In fact, Paul mentions this next, becoming like him in his death. And so it's nothing less than the crucifixion of Christ, his sufferings and ultimately his crucifixion that is in view here. When we're talking about, when we're talking about fellowship with his sufferings. Now what this confirms for us is that the path toward resurrection glory, right, and we'll look at this next week, Lord willing, Paul calls that a prize, the prize which we run toward, resurrection glory, The path towards heaven, the path towards resurrection glory, is not the broad path towards destruction. That path is easy. Jesus said as much. Lots of people are on it. The path towards resurrection glory is the narrow path. It is the least chosen path. The one that not many people are on. The narrow path is marked with suffering. At every stage, not just suffering in general, friends, but it is the narrow path of Christ's suffering, fellowship with his suffering. That's what Paul says here. What did Christ experience in his suffering? Well, Christ experienced dying to the world, being crucified to the principles and the elements of the world, the prerogatives of the world, the beliefs of the world, the twistedness, the pervertedness of the world. That is what happened with Christ. Being crucified to the world is what happened to the Christ even as he was crucified by the world. 
In some mysterious way, then, the Spirit, through our suffering in this present day, causes us to have fellowship with that suffering, with Christ's own suffering. A suffering that happened at another point in time. For us today, this happened thousands of years ago, like 2,000 years ago. And so it's a suffering that happened outside of us. It's a suffering, a suffering that he's gone through and is done with. It's history. But now, Paul says he wants to have fellowship with his sufferings, the sufferings that Jesus went through. Now, Jesus, through his sufferings, what did he do? Well, he atoned for our sins. He was treated by God as if he sinned. As if he sinned your sins. Our sins were credited to him. And he was treated as such. Though he never sinned. That is why he was crucified. That's why he walked that narrow path. He was sinless. And so thus he atoned for our sin. He purchased our justification. Now we can't do this. No one can do this outside of Christ. No one can atone for another's sins. Only as Jesus is able to pay for our sins, as we saw last week. But friends, we do bear, think about this, we do bear somewhat the burden of other people's sins. And of course, we bear the burden and the weight of our own sins, our own failures, do we not? That is the nature of our existence as Christians. Our sins as believers today cannot ultimately cut us off from the love of God in Christ. That, that's... That's justification. It can never be taken away. And so our sins today cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ, but they do grieve the Holy Spirit. We are told in Scripture that our sins are displeasing to our Father, and they cause us pain and they cause others pain, as, even as other people cause us pain as a result of their sin. Paul felt this. He says as much in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do the things I don't want to do. He, does the, he did this continually. I do the very things I don't want to do. Now this pain and struggle with our own sins and with other people's sins, friends, this is part of the narrow path that God has set you on. That is the nature of that path. To be bombarded and burdened with sin, a fight against sin, the fight against the temptations of the devil, the world, your own sin, all of that. That's the nature of our existence on this narrow path. We walk. And so in that way, then, we share in Christ's sufferings, the suffering of Christ being crucified to this world, putting to death the sins of the flesh and being more and more crucified to this world. And so, again, this is mystery for sure. We can't explain exactly how this takes place in the believer, but this is what takes place. You share, you have fellowship, you have a close, intimate relationship with the sufferings of Jesus Christ on this path that you're on, in your fight against sin and your fight against the devil. Now, certainly that's not easy, and we'll look at, in the next section, beginning in verse 12, we'll look at uh, some encouragement from Paul, Hill, Paul there about this path that we're on. But this is the case. 
And Paul wanted this. He wanted to know more of that. I want, I want to share in his sufferings because that's how we know Christ more and more. And so this is the same for us. Lastly, Paul says he, wants us, he wanted to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, to share in his suffering and to know Christ by becoming like him in his death. To say it differently, he wanted to be conformed into the image of Christ in his death. Now, to know Christ by faith means that each Christian in the body has a kind of solidarity and participation in the one-time death of Christ on the cross. That is what it means to be united to him, to believe in him. You have a solidarity, a participation in his death, that one-time death. Now, that death, of course, was outside of us, as we just said. It happened at another place And at another time, it happened at a different point than 2023, right? It's long gone for us today. And it was even history for the apostles. They they weren't there. They weren't physically put on the cross. Jesus was. Nevertheless, the Spirit, in uniting us to Christ and by giving us faith, he applies Christ's death to us so that his death becomes ours. And so in this way then, it can be said properly and truly that we died with him. The church that is. We were crucified with him. That is something that we can say by virtue of our spirit created union with Christ. The spirit has done this. The Holy Spirit has applied that death to you. So it's yours now. Now, this spiritual reality for every Christian, it's signified and sealed in our baptism. You might think about Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Christ died once. We are baptized into Christ's death once, one baptism. But there is a sense, based on Scripture, that we always carry in us that death. It's ever-present. It was a one-time death for sure, and we share in that one-time death, but that death is ever-present in our lives. Now, what was it that led Jesus to his baptismal death on the cross? Well, it was his love for his Father. It was his love for the church. His love for the church, which coincided with Christ's wholesale rejection of the world. In order to love the church, he had to reject all that the world offered him and proposed to him, if you remember Satan offered him the glories of all the world, Jesus, in order to love the church properly, had to reject all of that, which he did perfectly. He had to reject its desires and its practices completely. And now, what do Christian Christ followers say with Christ? We say, I have counted all things loss, that I may know Christ. And so thus, to be baptized into Christ's death means that you are continually made like Christ in his death. And so that you continually do what he did, reject the world, reject its prerogatives, reject all that it's offering you. Now, you can't do this perfectly in this life, and thus we're on this road of sanctification, but nevertheless, that's what Christ's death does. It's ever-present in your life, causing you by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be crucified to the world. I have counted all things lost that I may know Christ. 
And so to be baptized into Christ's death again means that you are made like Christ in his death. Your love for Christ and his church grows. You are, as the catechism says, you are renewed daily in the image of God. You desire to please your Father. That desire grows stronger and stronger, even as your love for the things of this world grows colder and colder. That is what should happen in the church. And that is what does happen in the church by virtue of our union with Christ. So yes, your life should change, and it does change. All of this, friends, by the Spirit in our sanctification, all of this is... The work is accomplished, it's the work of the Spirit, it's accomplished by the Spirit in our sanctification that each one of us, every single Christian, may know Christ more and more. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together.